Create an Unstoppable Life, episode 122. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. Welcome back. Let's start with announcements. The Authenticity, Courage, and Empowerment Conference for Women Physicians. It officially opens for registration November 1st. Can you believe it? It's just a few days away. (laughs) It seems like I've been talking about the conference forever. And now registration is opening. It's really a small conference, only 110 tickets available. And I'd love to welcome you to this place where you can renew your life, renew your career, have tons of support around you. April 28th through May 1st, 2022, San Antonio, Texas is where we're going to be. And the link to register, AuthenticPhysicians.com. It's that simple, AuthenticPhysicians.com. Next, want to become more clear in your business with your marketing, your messaging, your mindset? Join me for Next Steps. It's a tiny group coaching program that will create extraordinary results. And it's intentionally tiny. There are five participants will be in part of this program to create a meaningful experience that grows your business, grows your life. The link to find out more is in the show description. Finally, this week's business feature is virtual aid de camp. You can't do it all as an entrepreneur or a small business owner. There are too many details and things to follow up on that make or break a business. Virtual Aid to Camp is here to help, providing virtual assistance for your short-term or long-term needs. Craig will help you get more organized, streamlined, and updated, all so that you can focus on creating and delivering the work that inspires you. Contact Craig at cgeorge at virtualaiddecamp.com. That's cgeorge at virtualaiddecamp, A-I-D-E-D-E-C-A-M-P.com. Today's episode is with Justin Harvey, a financial planner and the founder of APM Wealth. He's an amazing person. He's kind. He's caring. He's generous with his thoughts. He's delicate in helping physicians maneuver what can be a minefield of emotions when it comes to finances. And he's generously donated his time today to talk about preparing for winter financially. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Ciao. Justin, it is so great that you're here today. Thank you for being here. Dina, I'm very pleased to be joining you. This is an honor knowing the caliber of the thoughts that you frequently share with your audience. I'm hopeful that this will be helpful for you. So Justin has agreed to come on for an off-the-cuff conversation around the concept of preparing financially for winter because winter is coming at some point for all of us. Could you introduce yourself and then we'll go in any direction that you want to go? Yeah. So my name is Justin Harvey. I'm a financial planner. I have a a niche practice working with physicians in the specialties of anesthesiology and pain management. You might scratch your head and say, Justin, that is weirdly specific. What the heck is going on with that? My wife is an anesthesiologist out here in Portland, Oregon, to which I have recently relocated. And we are really enjoying being in the Pacific Northwest. I've spent my entire life in the Northeast, in Philly and Pittsburgh, which is admittedly more mid-Atlantic, I suppose. 
And I spend a lot of my days and my hours trying to help physicians proactively solve all of the challenges that come with the physician lifestyle. As I know, Dina, you're intimately acquainted with those, and I am too, having married it. Being familiar with the specialty of anesthesiology and watching my wife go through training and getting to understand a little bit of the unique challenges faced by that specialty and its cousin pain management, that was what caused me to want to do this very specialty-specific approach to my work. But there's a lot of things that I do for clients that are, I would say, broadly applicable. And so anybody in this audience hopefully will find some nuggets to glean from the conversation about how do we prepare for the winter, not only in terms of the calendar year winter, but times of prolonged, you know, scarcity or stock market challenges. Or, you know, I remember, Dina, when you posed this question to me, preparing for winter, the thing that it triggered in my brain, I don't know why, but back in February, I think it was, of 2020, I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast. Perhaps you're familiar with that. He was having a physician from the University of Minnesota whose name escapes me. He was an immunologist there talking about coronavirus, this new thing that was just starting to hit the news. And he was warning, like, this is not a storm. This is like a winter. This is a winter that lies ahead. And that was when I was not really paying attention to what COVID was at the time, and my anxiety started ratcheting up. But it's interesting to see the prolonged challenges that we face as a society and in all kinds of different ways that are unanticipated. And I think there's financial corollaries there. Obviously, there's the short-term, you know, the weekend blizzard, so to speak, that you can sort of endure. But there's also these longer-term, a seasonal challenge or headwind that you can face. And it's definitely true in your career and in your money and investing. And I'm looking forward to unpacking this topic with you today. As a side note, I love the fact that the community that we function in is pretty small, that you're good friends with Coben. Coben was on the show not yes. so long ago. We did a shout out to you too. Yes, <laughs> yes. Episode. So financially, just looking at the stock markets and the, the climbs and the climbs and the climbs and the returns... And then hearing things in the media that suggest corporations are making big changes in terms of how they practice and where they're putting money suggests that winter is coming. And we hear it a lot, oh, prepare, but it really seems like it's coming. And so what I wonder is for those of us who are not directly linked into the financial industry, where are we at? What do we do? Great question. There's a lot that I can and will say. There's a difference between information and actionable information and being able to take an action based on a certain set of data. And, you know, the stock market is near all-time highs. I'm looking at Bitcoin. I'll be honest about Bitcoin. And by the way, before we get too into the weeds, my lawyers require me to say that nothing that follows is personalized financial advice. Please make any important financial and tax decisions in conjunction with a qualified professional that knows your unique circumstances. This is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Hopefully it will be both educational and entertaining. I'm looking at Bitcoin. I kind of have FOMO. <laughs> I talk about it with my brother-in-law and, you know, the stock market is up something like 30 plus percent in the last 12 months alone. Think about what the last 12 months has held for us. I think this is actually a perfect microcosm of why it's so difficult to say what's going to happen with stock market returns in the future. Think back a year. So this is now, you know, the end of 2020. And like, how much do we have to be optimistic about with the economy, would you think that it's going to be up a third from what was at the time record high? Like, it would not have been reasonable in many people's minds to predict that. So embedded in this question, Dina, is what should we be doing now to prepare? And 
Admittedly, there's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic, as there always is, as there was 12 months ago before the stock market went on this tear. So I think there's a lot of these cliches in the financial industry are exist because they endure, because I think there's truth in them, which is unless you're tethered to a long-term strategy, not a 6, 12, 18 month strategy, but a 5, 10, 20 year strategy, that's going to inform the way that you answer this question. So if you're saying in the next 12 months, what's going to happen with the stock market? What should I be doing? I don't know. If I did, I would be making money with the printing press. That idea would generate for me. But understanding your tolerance for risk, the ability that you have to remain in your seat with your seatbelt securely fastened while this, if the 30% uptick becomes a 30% downswing, as will happen at some time. And that happened in the first quarter of this year where there was a, it, it almost happened so fast. If you missed one quarterly statement, then you might've missed the whole, but for people who were paying attention to what's going on, that was a time of some nerves. And if you have the ability to say the money that I'm investing right now in this bucket, we'll think of it in terms of a bucket, it's 10, 15, 20 year money. If it's long-term money, then you don't need to be concerned about Right now, the stock market being at an all-time high about all of the things that can go wrong, supply chain issues and what's going on in China. And, you know, there's plenty of reasons to be pessimistic. There's actually a really famous chart that gets updated periodically about this. It's a stock market chart going from March 7th, 2009, which was the very, very bottom of the sort of the bear market that we saw at the end of the aughts up to present. And it's just this basically almost unmitigated march from bottom left to top right. And interposed on this chart is these little pointers, these little arrows pointing to these different events, these world events. And it's like, this was a war. This was this thing. This was this thing. This country invades that country. And here's this economic contagion. And it's all these reasons to be pessimistic. All these things that could have been, you know, the apocalypse, economically speaking. And yet, what we've seen is that the wealth building engine, that is the global economy and the stock market, has continued to march. Now, it may be, Dina, that you and I will live to see the end of capitalism in this country. I surely hope not. But if we don't, then one of the things that I sort of do take this on faith as part of what I do is that there may be a sell-off. And I mentioned before we hit record the laws of financial gravity. If the stock market keeps going up, eventually it's going to snap back to the long-term average. But if that happens in a bucket of money, say it's worth a million dollars that you need for retirement in 15 years, and it snaps back and now that million is worth, you know, 600,000. That would be a significant sell-off. If you don't need it for 15 more years, you just rebalance. You stick to the plan. You say, if I'm a 90-10 stocks to bonds investor, I have a certain risk tolerance. That's a pretty aggressive allocation. If that's how I feel that I can remain in my seat with my seatbelt securely fastened with that type of mix, and it goes from a million to 600,000, yeah, that's certainly unsettling, but it just means you rebalance. You know, that 90-10 is the ratios are going to get a little bit off when the stock market sells off and you just return your portfolio to that same 90-10 and then you wait the 14 more years that you're still waiting until that time horizon arrives and, you know, maybe make strategic level tweaks along the way. But there's no world in which a wholesale abandonment of a long-term strategy, i.e. going from 90-10 to, oh my gosh, let's go half in cash to let's do something drastic. Let's go a third into Bitcoin. Like none of that is a good idea because it's not tied to a long-term strategy. You're just guessing now. And if we look at that chart that I described and we were guessing along the way, there's a million reasons to sell, a million reasons to go 100% cash all along the way. And you would have missed out on this 
several hundred percent run-up that we've seen. You make a really important point, which is step one, get honest with yourself. Get honest with yourself. What you said is with your risk tolerance, but it also sounds like get honest with yourself with where your finances are at. Getting clear about what you have, what you want, what you need to or want to pay back on, and then how you're feeling about it so that there isn't an impulsive decision. I remember back in 2002, 2007, 2008, watching people just sell, sell, sell because they were so afraid of getting to the bottom of a stock value. So what was $25, they were selling at six and feeling grateful for it because they were scared. Yeah. Fear is a powerful motivator. It's designed to, you know, evolutionarily speaking, it's the fight or flight reflex. It's good to keep you alive when you're, you know, the bushes rustle on the side of the path for sort of our ancestors to keep you in, in survival mode, but it's a very poor mechanism when it comes to navigating financial markets. It makes you do exactly what you just described, and the outcomes are not good. Not good. I mean, they're good for somebody who's buying it at that and willing to stay in it for the long term and watch it That's go right. back up. You know, I talk with people a lot about health. So just putting this in the health perspective, they're like, what do I need to do about my health? Do I need to take this rare known enzyme or rare known herb? And I'm like, no, you just need to take stock of where your health is at. Are you smoking? Are you moving? What goes in your mouth? What are you taking in for nutrition? Because chances are there's really big things before getting to those micro things that may or may not help their health. There's absolutely a financial corollary to that, which is control the controllables. What the stock market gives you in terms of return, that is something 100% outside your control. The amount of money you're saving, the amount of money you're spending, doing some tax intelligent savings along the way, those are things within your control. Like do those. And then as much as possible, and this is easier said than done, but you got to like export the stress of the rest of it because you can't, it's 100% outside your control. So I mentioned step one, get honest with yourself, where your accounts are at, what you owe, what's income, what you're investing, how much you're investing, what your long-term goals are. What else would you add to that? Just kind of that step one, getting started. Yeah, great question. One of the things that I love to do is to have a conversation, if it's with that individual or if it's a married couple with the two married partners who have some values, some priorities, some more qualitative considerations, facets to their financial well-being. And for them, success doesn't look like dying with the most money. It looks like something very different. And it looks like living their richest life every day. Because at the end of the day, all you have is today. And they want all of those todays strung together to be the kind of life that they want. So a lot of what I do is excavating, identifying, defining those values, those priorities, and trying to bring life to them, give them corners and edges so we can understand what is it that we're working with and how do we deploy your economic resources in this instance or other resources that you have to support those things that my clients say are the most important things to them. Because, you know, dying with 5 million bucks, you're still dead at the end of that or 10 or whatever your number is. But living a rich life that is, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with net worth. It's how you're spending your time and your money and your relationships and the, the substance of your days. It's good financial planning, I would say, is inextricably linked with that type of experience. So those questions are all very important to ask. What I really appreciate about you is that you incorporate 
that whatever that priority is, if it's a boat for the family, then that's part of the saving strategy is to have that, to afford that, to pay for that, to feel good about that. Yes. And not only that, but like what the boat represents, like it's never just the boat. It's like, I want to spend time with the people that I love, or I want to have some solitude so I can get some space for my brain to explore my own humanity. I think that's the good stuff. That's my favorite part of my job is when I can help people actualize those dreams. Yeah. To just imagine that it can be them. Like you really can have this. You really can have, save for, plan for whatever it is that you want. So if that's the case, what do you think it might be? So many of us don't allow ourselves to want. Like if we don't know how to get it or how to pay for it, we can't want it. It's too big. Yeah. And as these values and priorities come to the fore, what I also find is that there's more than one way to get to the desired destination. And maybe it's a boat, but... Maybe it's, you know, renting a cabin every six months and it doesn't have a, you know, a $75,000 price tag. Maybe it's creating the time and the space rather than just the financial. And it, it can be both and it usually is both. But thinking holistically about your life and the ways to achieve the desired end is where it gets fun and you can be creative and think outside the box a little bit, which I love to do. I know as a kid, just growing up, what I saw, or at least what I remember now is people that put their time in, put their money away. And at some point they could enjoy their life when they retired. And that may or may not have been true. Like maybe they made it to retirement and maybe they were able to enjoy their life at that point. It doesn't have to be that way though, huh? It ought not. (laughs) Frankly, I think the financial industry has been selling, what I would just call it, that's a lie. Selling that lie because it's the way that the financial industry maximizes their profitability. And I think there's a lot of good people in finance and I hope that in some way I'm one of those. But there's a lot of perverse incentive, which is financial institutions want to take as much of your money as possible, hold it for as long as possible, and dribble it back to you so they can continue to earn as much fees as possible on that money. And I think what you just described, which is the the myth of retirement, where you can start living someday, but today's not that day, and smack your knuckles at the ruler if you try to get your hands on your own money. I think it's a broken paradigm, I would say. What do you think is the next step? So somebody has sat down, they've gotten honest with where they're at, they're partnering with their partner, they're thinking bigger about their lives. What follows? That's a great question. It's so much more than finance, but it's not less than finance. So I think you put everything on the table, how you spend your time and your money and what, if you look at your calendar, if you maybe put on like the third party goggles and say like, I'm looking at, you know, Dr. Dina George's calendar and I don't know her, I'm just going to try to guess what she's about, what's important to her based on what I see in her, you know, calendar.google.com. And then what would that person think? This is one way to approach this question. And then you can reverse engineer the right answer. If you kind of take that approach and you're like, oh, this doesn't tell me what I want it to tell me. You can begin to build in, make space for what we would call the big rocks. You know, there's that analogy of the jar and the big rocks and then the gravel and the sand and all that. So I think that's one sort of action item. It's This is something that it does require intentionality. There's a lot of good resources out there. I can't remember if we mentioned the last time we spoke, something that I really like is this method of what I call life planning. It's known in my corner of the world as life planning, which is the qualitative side of financial planning. This, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about around priorities, values, vision, there's a few people in my field that have pioneered this movement. And I think you can just Google financial life planning. There's a lot of great resources. There's great books. There's a guy named George Kinder who's done a lot of good work and a few others. 
I have probably a, a few books here on my shelf if I kind of parse through them. But I think having something like that to go through with your partner, it will give you a framework into which you can then make decisions. So it does impact your investment. It does impact your time. It impacts saving for tomorrow and balancing that with spending today and also balancing it with generosity and balancing it with other goals. So there is necessarily action that follows the vision. That's something that sometimes people can do by themselves. Sometimes it makes sense to partner with a professional who is like-minded in understanding the, the holistic life planning paradigm and being able to sort of walk their clients through that. I think that is really valuable and that's something worth considering. There's also, you know, blogs and your podcast, I think is a great resource in asking some of those questions. So, I mean, it's a combination of you, you start with the big picture and then eventually you get to the tactical, the, the what now do we do and making the decision of, do we implement this on ourselves, on our own? Do we work with someone? Do we have a system maybe that we get from a book and we can every three or six months carve out time in our calendar to our mutual friend, Dr. Jimmy Turner, he's the one I learned this idea from. I'm sure it's not super novel, but he has this idea of the money date. You know, you go out on a date with your significant other and talk about the vision priorities that you have and how your money is expressing that or not. And then having a touch point, a check-in periodically every three or six months or, or more frequently, if you want, to assess how you're doing based on the vision that you share. Again, it can be an intense process and it can take some I don't presume that anyone could do that themselves. And frankly, as a professional, I don't think I am really even equipped to do that with my wife just because of the inherent challenges that we just don't see our own blind spots, even when you know the right answer. It's definitely true in finance. And I think physicians have their own version of that same challenge. I've heard that you shouldn't practice medicine on yourself. <laughs> you know, it's funny so, that you, you bring that up because I got asked just recently, is it hard for you to not be your own doctor? or not be the doctor for your husband or your son. I was like, no way. I only want one job, either yeah. the job of being yeah. me, the job of being wife, the, the job of being mom. That's it. I totally agree. And that's why I'm reticent to, yeah, especially with family members. <laughs> uh, yeah. The tools that you shared were a lot of fun for Craig and I, because you walked us through the process of using the tool, sharing the tool, and then kind of bringing together our own unique viewpoints and our own strengths and our own challenges, and then going forward cohesively. I think that's the value of working with somebody else. Absolutely. And that's a perfect example of whenever those things are clicking, whenever you feel in sync with your partner and like you're living into the life that you've defined that you want, that makes life feel amazing. Even when you're going through the tough stuff, the difficulties and the challenges and it doesn't matter what your net worth is really <laughs> at that point, as long as you have sort of a, you know, as long as you're meeting your own basic needs. So I, yeah, totally agree. So communication and consistency, that's kind of the summary of what I hear you saying. Yes, I think so. And then having a, a way to, I think, implement where the rubber meets the road, like is the, are the tasks that you're setting out for yourself to do the thing that you purpose to do, is that getting accomplished in some way? I think that just interacting with humans and being human and having a very human brain, I think most of us don't realize that someday the planning for it starts today. So if I want a family foundation, quote unquote, someday, I start planning for it, working towards it, visualizing it and saving towards it today, regardless of the amount of resources that I have right now. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. It's like, I think the proverb, the best time to plant an oak tree is a hundred years ago. The second best time is today. 
And today is, like I said, it's it's all we have. And I think there's this quote in preparing for this podcast. It's meant a lot to me. It's come up on another podcast that I listened to, The Tim Ferriss Show. I can't remember if we've talked about him. I think maybe we have different ideas, but it's one that I enjoy. And there's this quote that he's mentioned a few times that I really have sort of latched onto. It's routine in an intelligent man is a sign of ambition. And it's this idea of the value of consistency over time, moving towards whatever the goal is or the vision that you dream of. And I think having a system and having that consistency and being able to continue to put one foot in front of the other, you know, the family foundation is a great example. That's not the kind of thing that just happens. It's the product of developing a vision and moving towards a goal. And probably, I mean, unless you're like third generation, you know, old money or something like that, continuing to push towards that future that you envision. And unless you have that consistency, it's unlikely that dream will come to fruition, I think. That's the way that I process that. And that's what I believe to be true about these circumstances. So whenever I think, and it's funny, there's this tension that I sense in my own life. I love to press into like self-improvement and like learning how to be the best me and even surrounding myself with lots of resources and like reading the books and listening to the podcast. But I find that sometimes that can be a distraction from actually doing the work of cultivating the habits of consistency. I'm curious if you've bumped into this, but I was just thinking about this today. I wonder for myself, I kind of distract myself from the moving towards the goals that I envision because I'm so surrounded by, I guess, the like the content around optimization and around achievement. I don't just do the, you know, for example, one of the methods espoused by a number of people that I respect is called morning pages. This is something that I do occasionally <laughs> right now, which is sit down every day and write three long form pages. It's like a brain dump. Yeah. It's this way to clarify your mind. And some people use it as like a prayer or meditation or organization or writing. It's totally open-ended, but I found this to be incredibly helpful. I've only done it not nearly as much as I want to, but I've come across it in these podcasts that I listen to like a lot more than I've actually done it. So I sense this tension between the what I aspire to and the desire for routine and consistency, what I'm practically able to shoehorn into my somewhat hectic life, I guess. Is that something that you've experienced at all? So I totally think that's part of the human experience, especially with high achievers, is we get into this cycle that we want to learn more and learn more. And it's easier to learn more than it is to implement and stay consistent with it. I'm such a big believer in having accountability, whether it's someone that you pay as like a coach or an advisor, or just a friend or a group of people who provide that check-in, that checkpoint, that requirement for you to answer for your time. <laughs> that is, it's just the best. Right. And it's simplifying the process. I kind of think of hiring people to help as like those people in curling, <laughs> you know, that game curling or not the game. Yes. The oh, sport. yes. Oh, yes. No, there's, they're sweeping to, uh -huh. to help that, whatever it's called, either yeah. go faster or go slower or go in a certain direction, mm. that there's people in front of us that are guiding the way and help paving the way so that it goes as smooth as possible. Our conversation, we started out by saying preparing for winter, and all of this is irregardless of what season we're in. We can be in a season of growth or boom, and these are still the important considerations. And I think what I hear most is don't panic. No matter where we're at financially, don't panic, because that's one of the worst things we can do. What are your thoughts? I would say the times of, you know, if we think about the seasonality of winter as a time of like 
hibernation or scarcity. Those are the times when there's a lack of abundance. That's actually when the routine, when the consistency, that's when it like really has the highest yield. So if there's, you know, a big stock market sell-off, what the consistency and the routine says for a, in the financial context, to use this as an example, this is a stock market sell-off, you lose a bunch of money. The strategy says the dispassionate approach to this is you rebalance your portfolio. You don't do anything crazy. You make sure you go back to your target allocation and you continue to sit on your hands and don't do anything dumb. If you're able to do that in the time when it's most difficult, what you're doing is you're actually optimizing your portfolio to whenever the recovery does come, assuming we don't live to see the end of capitalism, you're going to be optimized to spring out of the doldrums, the bottom of the, the sell-off, and you're actually going to do much better than someone who didn't have the discipline to do so. And actually, if you're unable in that time to maintain your nerve, that's when you permanently irreparably damage yourself. If the consistency in the routine is unable to be manifest in that season, that's, you know, that's when it's very damaging. And I think there's, you could apply this to like your health or relationships. It's the time whenever it's not easy, that sort of the falling back on the habit and the consistency. You know, think about a relationship with a significant other or a spouse, like the time when it's not clicking <laughs> or when it's most difficult is the time when you need to continue to press in and seek for that engagement and that intimacy to be able to get you through. It's not the time to withdraw, <laughs> but it's the opposite. So yeah. In fact, even to move slower, to move yeah. gentler and to move with a whole lot of kindness because irrational decisions can lead to significant damage, significant long-term damage that's unnecessary. What else as far as preparing for winter? What are other thoughts that come to mind on what can we do right now? I would say after you've sort of taken stock of your circumstances and identified making sure that you know yourself well enough to understand the way forward, there's an idea, one of the writers that I really like, his name is Nassim Taleb. He creates this paradigm where there's things that are fragile, things that are durable, and things that are what he calls anti-fragile. He like makes up this word. And I, I can't remember, it's been a while since I've read this book, but an example would be the stock market when we don't like mess with it. And there's a lot of like manipulation and external forces. So this is a little bit of a broken example, but the economy is a, in some ways, a self-correcting organism. And as it undergoes various shocks and changes and cataclysm at times, it emerges more resilient. It evolves and it is strengthened by the sort of collective memory of what has happened to it. Humans have the ability to sort of understand this spectrum this fragility, durability, and anti-fragility. And to, I mean, at the very least, it's the anti-fragility in its pure form is, I'm not sure that it's actually something we can attain, but at least to recognize that there are many circumstances in which we can be strengthened by the circumstances that we experience, especially if they're adverse, and allow those circumstances to shape and inform our future actions and make us more, not only to like endure them and make it through, but actually to be strengthened by them. So as you think about whether it's a stock market sell-off or a time of scarcity or less activity, I think seeing these times as an opportunity, pressing into the reality, I think, that they are an opportunity to draw strength from the new experience or from the challenging experience in particular. I think that there's something there that is worth grasping onto and, and trying to internalize this is particularly true in the sort of the mechanics of the way that rebalancing, for example, works in finances is when you rebalance in a sell-off, you're better positioned 
for the gains, but I also psychologically, it does make you a more, not only durable, but you're strengthened by the collective experience. You're not just making it through. You're stepping into a better version of yourself, I think. So as in thinking about the days that may lay ahead in this next season, I think that's an idea that really resonates with me. And one that I think we're uniquely positioned. Well, I don't know how you, depends on what happens in the future in the next couple months. But I think that this is something that investors, specifically, you know, physicians in this audience who are earning a good income and probably building investments over time, allowing those experiences, those, if there is a market sell-off, if there is difficulty, or I mean, there's so much dislocation right now in the physician employment market, even those types of personal or career experiences, allowing those to be sources of strength. I think that's a really powerful reality that is all in the framing and I think is kind of ours for the taking. Yeah, because fear, doubt, and uncertainty are going to try to lead the way. And we're going to look around and see so much reaction to it, like just decisions that are being made impulsively. So stepping back, reassuring, like there's no reason to panic. And then as you said, what's the opportunity here? And it extends beyond financially. What's the opportunity for our family? What's the opportunity for my career? What's the opportunity for where we live? And is this someplace we want to be? It's like an opportunity to rethink everything. And the money is whatever the money is. If It'll rebuild if it's untouched and it has a direction and purpose. It'll rebuild. It always has. There's this a book that I give to many of my clients. I got a copy of it right here. The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. That's a great one. Anybody who's listening, if you want to just get a little, a great primer on all of the behavioral complexities of how we interact with money, it takes a nice fresh look at it. But there's a quote in there that's from Napoleon Bonaparte, something to the effect of courage is having the ability to do the normal thing when everybody else is losing their minds. And I think that's, there's a lot of application for that, but especially in times of market distress or prolonged you know, economic challenges, just to continue to stick to your long-term plan. It is exceptional. It's not common, but to be able to do that over time will make you, it will distinguish you among your peers. I'll put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Slow and steady in the same direction, not rethinking it and not overthinking it for sure. What's something like if you had to pick one thing that somebody could do tonight, what would you say? I love the power of automation to be able to have things happen in the background without you thinking about it. There's a lot of different ways in which this can be manifest to your advantage. I think the most practical, functional, applicable thing I can think of is, and I would say with a caveat, there's sort of a tax optimized way to do what I'm describing, but basically take a little bit of the money in your checking account and automate a savings mechanism and consider revisiting that savings mechanism periodically and increasing it. So for example, if you're not saving right now and you want to start building wealth, maybe it's a Roth IRA or maybe it's a taxable investment account or other another thing that you want to, a goal you want to save for, just automate it. Go get into your computer, log into your like bank account, find that automatic monthly recurring whatever and start sending money somewhere every month without you thinking about it. Because removing that incremental emotional and mental hurdle is a way that the snowball can begin to roll in your favor. And without that automation, if it's a matter of making an affirmative decision and taking an action on a recurring basis, that's 
It's possible, but it requires so much more work. If you can just do it once, set it and forget it, it will work much to your favor. I just thought of one other thing I want to share, and it can be a little bit, you know, people come at me with a lot of investment questions and ideas and what about this and what about that. Another thing that I have picked up from our friend, Mr. Tim Ferriss, don't make a thousand decisions when one decision will suffice. And I really like the ruthless simplicity of this idea. So there are certain, I mean, people that I know that shouldn't ever mess with anything speculative in terms of like, should I invest in Bitcoin? I'm thinking about going into this property with my brother and we're going to do like, there's other, there's certain types of investments that I think are, have inherent challenges and, or that are speculative. And I think if you can institute a rule in your life that eliminates the emotional energy of having to cogitate about, should I pursue this opportunity? It's true with investments. It's true with career stuff. It's true with relationships. I think if you can have a, a rule for yourself that says, I'm just not going to go there, then you don't have to continually ask the question, is this something I should consider? And I'll just give you an example for, you know, I don't, with my personal investments, I keep it very simple. And my focus is on the uh, the percentage of our household income that we save and not on the actual, I, you know, I'm not picking stocks. And I, like I said, I don't own any Bitcoin. And I've made this categorical decision. I'm going to have a broadly diversified basket of securities that I'm going to stuff money into. And what that does for me is uh, slightly ingest, talked about Bitcoin and watching it and having some FOMO. And I do have a little bit of that, but I would have a lot more of that if I was actively considering how much of this or how much of, you know, Ethereum or how much of these other opportunities or looking at stuff. Like once you open yourself to what should I be invested in, in terms of individual security selection, you just create a bajillion decisions for yourself. And all of a sudden you're competing against a bunch of supercomputers and people way smarter than you. But by simplifying this decision where I can make some intelligent choices and then leave it alone, I free up all this emotional and mental energy I have to deploy in a new direction, which again, if we're thinking in naked economic terms, like how do I make more money and how do I save more of that money? Those are both much bigger determinants of building wealth than did I pick stock A or stock B or this cryptocurrency or that cryptocurrency. So if you can, if there's an opportunity in your life to make one decision to eliminate a bunch of other decisions that are going to be an emotional drag, that's absolutely worth doing. So kind of the themes of our conversation have been getting honest, communicating well, staying consistent, not reacting, not panicking, and simplify and automate. I think that's a great summation. I think if you do all those things, you're going to be uh, doing an amazing job. Other thoughts, words of wisdom, kind of closing things that everyone will benefit from hearing. No pressure. <laughs> None taken. Here's a parting thought. This is something that I sort of solve for in my own life and I try to build in conjunction with my wife and that's just eliminating stress. I think everything that I've described has the root motivation of eliminating stress. Like I'm stressed if I'm trying to decide Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus Tesla stock versus all these. It causes stress and anxiety, and it also creates a long to-do list for me. So it gives me time, but it also reduces baseline stress. Having a high savings rate, having a big emergency fund, having a system where I'm not actively, I don't need to decide, should I go to cash now? Because the stock market's down 22%. It's like, it doesn't matter. I just implement the system. That creates a lot of emotional and mental freedom for me, and it reduces stress. So these decisions that I'm describing, these methods and tactics 
for me, they all stem from that idea of stress reduction. So whether it's these systems that I've described, whether it's having a certain amount of money in cash, that's your quote unquote, sleep well at night money, creating a wide, the analogy I like to use is like a castle. You create a big moat around you. So you've got your castle in the middle and the moat is that big expanse of water that whenever the, you know, the invading army comes up, they've got to like swim through that <laughs> to get to the wall of the castle. And you have a lot of forewarning and time to prepare. If you've got a big cash balance on hand to be able to meet those emergencies, or if you're well insured, or if you have income coming from a number of different sources, these are all sort of different expressions economically of a moat. So, and again, the, the benefit of the moat, the benefit of having income from three different sources from having, you know, I own a business from which I derive income, I do consulting, and I do rental real estate, and I do these other things. I, I talk a lot about the, the money, but at the root of that, it reduces stress because if any one of those shuts off, I got three others. Or if something goes wrong, I've got cash in the bank. Or if something breaks, I've got it insured. If you make all these decisions with the goal of reducing stress, it just makes your step a little lighter and, and your day is a little easier to handle in this world that is admittedly stressful and difficult at times. So I think whether it's the financial decision-making, the emotional or career decision-making, I've never made a decision to eliminate stress and regretted it, that, that I can remember at least. Now, obviously, there's certain stressors in your life that you can't necessarily jettison. And we all probably <laughs> have those people. But there's a lot that we can do. And it's great. If you, The more of that you can do, the yeah, things just uh, improve mightily. So, Yeah, it's really creating our own freedom and our own fulfillment. Like taking stress out of the picture means that there's more time to really savor beautiful weather or a quiet moment or a smile from your child, or even looking at your account statements and seeing what the future can look like, what you're building, what you're working towards, all the good stuff. And you got to cultivate gratitude in the middle of that because you can have the most optimized, fine-tuned life. And that's one of these funny things. I see people who are very high-functioning and very, they do. They're so much further around the track on eliminating stress than I am. And they don't deal with anything. Just because you've eliminated a lot of stress, you're not exempt from still having to work to find that meaning and fulfillment and that purpose. And uh, that's still always part of the picture. Keeps everybody honest, I think, which is beautiful. Where can you share about your podcast and your website and how people can learn more about you? Yeah. So my podcast is called APM Success, like anesthesia and pain management. A lot of the content there is focused on helping physicians be more informed about topics pertaining to business practice management, personal finance, contracts, career, things like that. A lot of it is specialty specific, not all of it is. So you can check it out if you want to. My website for my financial planning company, apm-wealth.com. There's a little bit more information there about how I do business and the people whom I serve. If you want to reach out to me directly, email at justin at apm-wealth.com. Would be glad to answer any questions or interact with anyone from your audience. Thank you so much for spending time today. Dina, this was a blast. Thanks for having me. So glad you joined today and so many thanks for Justin and his words, his encouragement and his wisdom. My biggest takeaway is that we don't have to wait till the threat of winter to start preparing ourselves. Knowledge is power. Getting more knowledgeable about where we're really at, what we're really willing to tolerate as far as risk or direction, and then getting honest about what we want is so essential to an unstoppable life. And it's something that all of us can have. 
it's not going to magically happen, right? Nobody's going to walk up to us and say, here's your amazing, unstoppable life. It is through perseverance and diligence and honesty and communication that we get there. I am sending you all so much love and I look forward to seeing you next time. Ciao. Create clarity and simplicity with all of your marketing so that the people you serve know how you can help them. As a StoryBrand certified guide, I help physicians create this to launch or grow any type of business. Sign up for a consult call with me at georgemdcoaching.com.